and take your seats. Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. Sheets available there on the back if you haven't got a chance to grab them. Daniel chapter 7. We're halfway through our study here of the book of Daniel. And um, I don't know if we're going to be able to get through all the chapter tonight. It's not that it's necessarily a long chapter, but some of the concepts that we're going to talk about, we have to start flipping through different passages here to get the full vision of it. This is actually the perfect chapter to be right in the middle of the book of Daniel. As we've said before when we started our study in Daniel a few weeks ago, Daniel, half of the book is narrative, telling the story of Daniel and his life and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and the other half of the book is prophecy. This chapter here in chapter 7 is really a great transitional chapter because really the rest of this book deals more with prophecy than it does with the narrative story. Daniel 7 is going to go back and remind us some of the stuff that we went through in the first six chapters of Daniel, and it also sets the scene for what we're going to go through in the last half here of the section of Daniel. Now, the book of Daniel is not necessarily written in chronological order. The way chapter 6 ended, the Medes and the Persians had defeated the Babylonians, and they were now in charge of the kingdom. Well, you can see here in the first verse of Daniel 7, verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. We're going back now to right around chapter 5. Daniel at this time is probably mid to late 60s, or last week when we talked about Daniel in the lion's den, he was probably in his early to mid 80s. So just keep that in the back of your mind, mid to late 60s. And what he does is he has this vision, he has this dream, this prophecy. And that's what Daniel 7 is about here as this prophecy is explained. We're not going to really do a verse-by-verse -verse study per se here through Daniel 7 because we have to jump around a lot in this chapter. So if we had plenty of time, it would be great to read the whole thing through and then go back and break it down. We don't have the time to do that. So we're going to kind of just jump around a little bit on this and hopefully you can follow along here with the sheets. So Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came out from the sea, each different from the other. First was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second like a bear, it was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another like a leopard, which was, had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Now I was considering the horns, there was another horn, a little one, coming up from among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking pompous words. Now let's stop there for a second. First thing that I find interesting about this is verse 1. He wrote down the dream telling the main facts. Now, this is a side point that really has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about tonight. The importance of when you're spending time with the Lord. I can't stress this to you enough. When you do your devotions with the Lord, when you have your Bible out, it's nice to have a pad and some pencil or pen or something and write stuff down. I remember when I first got saved, I met this gal at college when we were doing Campus Crusade over there, and she was really into the journaling and writing notes. I never got into that stuff. It really was only until a few years ago that I really got into the beauty of it, and I started realizing the importance of writing these things down. And now I realize as I go through stuff and I study this out, you see how many times in the Bible does God say, write it down? And this is kind of an overwhelming point almost because I looked it up to see how many times he says, write it down. There's so many references in the Bible where he says, write it down, it's, I couldn't even find one reference to pick. Because he's always telling people all the time, write it down. If you're doing devotions and the Lord reveals something to you, write it down. I know what you think. You're going to remember that verse. 
you're human, you're not going to remember that verse. <laughs> write it down. When the Lord reveals something to you, write it down. When you have a neat praise, write it down. Keep that with you, and it's really neat to go back and see what God's done. Daniel wakes up, and what's he do? He writes down what the Lord gave him. I put this verse down of Deuteronomy 17, 18 through 20. If you get a chance, I encourage you to go read that on your own. One of the requirements given to the king of Israel is before he would take over as king, he had to write out the entire law by hand. He had his own copy of the law that he was required to write out and study himself. The purpose was what? Obvious. He would know what the law said. He would know what God required of him, and that's what he would do. I find that a fascinating thing. There's a beauty in writing these scriptures down and what the Lord does. If you have a hard time remembering things, write it down. I've said many times, if you come over to our house, we have scriptures written all over the place. We write it down. I have sticky notes all over the place of verses. Write it down. I like that there. So, moving on. Prophecy, that's what we're dealing here in verses 2 through 8. Just a quick, quick reminder. We've already covered this second point you can see on your, sh on your sheets, but it bears repeating. What is the purpose of prophecy? Go ahead and look up these verses in Isaiah later on tonight. And what you're going to see in these verses in Isaiah is God comes out and says, the way that you know that I'm God is I'm the one that can see the future and tell you what's going to happen. And as we've talked about earlier when we studied prophecy earlier in the book of Daniel, the Bible is the only, and I use this word lightly, holy book, considering all world's religions, that has prophecy in it. Because why? Because God's the only one that knows what's going to happen in the future. God uses prophecy to prove that he is God and he knows what's going to happen. And so when you go and read these verses in Isaiah 41, 42, and 44, you see God saying, if you want to know I'm real, if you want to know that I know what's going on, look at this. I'm the one that prophesies. So when you have these chapters of prophecy in Daniel 7, and we look at verses 4, 5, and 6, and we're talking about birds and lions and bears, what's the point of this? Part of the purpose is to show that God knows exactly what's happening. Now, let's get to the vision here of what happened. This is an important vision. This vision is given in Daniel 2, this vision is given in Daniel 7, and this vision is given in Revelation 13. My rule is always very simple. If God says it once in the Bible, it's really important. If God says it twice in the Bible, it's really, really important. When you start getting to the same thing being repeated three times in the Bible, I think God's trying to make a case here. So as you read through this and you say, what a waste of a Wednesday to talk about birds, bears, and lions, and terrible beasts. God said, I'm going to repeat this same vision three different times in the Bible to prove a point. Now, real quick sum up of this, the lion represents Babylon, bear represents the Medes and Persians, leopard represents Greece, and the terrible beast is Rome and the descendants of the Roman Empire. Now, we know that because we've already gone through this before in Daniel chapter 2, and this is exactly how history played out. This shouldn't be a shock to us. This is exactly what happened. Babylon was the first one. They were defeated by the Medes and Persians, who was defeated by the Greeks, and who was defeated by Rome. That's exactly what happened. I've shared with you before when I was in college and one of the classes I was required to take was a Hebrew Old Testament. And even though I supposedly went to a Christian college, they uh, taught Hebrew Old Testament. And one of the things they said about the book of Daniel was that the book of Daniel was considered that it was written after all these prophecies happened because they come right out and say the prophecies were true, too good. There's no way anybody could have got them right. And that's part of the fascination of this. Daniel got it right through the Spirit. Now, how do we know it's these different nations? Let's look at this real quick. Start in verse 4. Lion, powerful, eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. Now, what does that mean? Well, I can tell you what we think it means. What we think it means is this is a picture of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember if our story in Nebuchadnezzar from Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, the way he finally came to know the Lord is for seven years he was cast in the wilderness 
and he lost his mind. A lot of people believe when they look at verse 4 here, it's talking about Nebuchadnezzar. His wings were plucked off, cast into the wilderness. He was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man. The Bible says in Daniel chapter 4 that when Nebuchadnezzar's mind returned to him, that's exactly what he did, and a man's heart was given to it, meaning Nebuchadnezzar finally had a heart. It's almost like the ten man from the Wizard of Oz. He finally got a heart. He got right with God. And so as we read there in verse 4, it seems to be a picture of Nebuchadnezzar and how he came to know the Lord, which I think is pretty cool. If you look how God wants to sum up the history of Babylon. Now Babylon, even to the secular world, is a powerful, amazing nation. The way God decides to sum up the history of Babylon in verse 4 is Nebuchadnezzar got saved. Does that not show you the only thing the Lord cares about is whether you're going to heaven or hell? It's God's mind. Next one, verse 5 would be the Medes and Persians. It says right there, it was raised up on one side. What a lot of people believe is the Medes and Persians were united together. But as time went on, one of the kingdoms became stronger than the other, the Persians. We don't talk about the Medes much anymore, do we? But people know about the history of the Persians, that they became overpowering. Why would it talk about three ribs in its mouth between its teeth? If you study out history, the Medes and the Persians had three different geographical areas that they conquered and were in control over. Remember what we talked about back in Daniel chapter 6? Look in verse 2. Over these three governors at three different areas, they conquered three ribs. Moving on to the next one here, verse 5. Excuse me, verse 6, leopard. Leopard moves quick. Greece, Alexander the Great, conquered the world quickly. If I remember correctly, how old was he when he died? Does anybody remember? 30, 33. So he died at 33, and what happened when he died, he had no descendants, and so his kingdom was divided up amongst his four generals, verse 6, the four heads. Okay? Last one here, verse 7, would be considered Rome. Rome is powerful. Huge iron teeth, the powerfulness of Rome. And what you see here at the end, this idea of the residue with its feet, now you've got to remember a little bit of history here. Rome does not exist, but Rome, when you really look at history, Rome was really never conquered. It just kind of fell apart. And nearly any Western civilization government is an offshoot of a Roman government. And so that's why I was talking about here in verse 7, the residue with its feet. Now, we'll get into ten horns here and a little horn in just a couple seconds, but that's the vision right there of world history. Babylon means in Persians, Greece, and then Rome. That's the vision there of the world history. Now, any quick questions, comments about that? Ryan. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. It's one of those that we get really caught up on it, and we sit there and we say, well, what was the statue look like? And God says, you're missing the point. It's not what the statue looked like. Get the information of it there, and that's the main thing. John, you had your hand up? Mm -hmm. um, there's a little bit of a dual meaning because if you go to Revelation 13, Antichrist kingdom combines elements of all these different kingdoms brought together. You know, it's one of those things where the Antichrist kingdom in Revelation 13 has the glory of Babylon, has the stability of the Medes and Persians. He takes over the world swiftly like Greece did, and he's a terrible beast like Rome. So that's why in Revelation 13, when these four items are mentioned again, it shows the Antichrist is a combination of all of it. So it's a dual fulfillment. You, you can make a case that it is because it's also going to be fulfilled again with the Antichrist in Revelation 13. David. Yeah, that's a phrase that's thrown around a lot is that idea of the revived Roman Empire. And some people kind of think of it can mean a couple of different things. One idea is that the Antichrist will set up his kingdom off the Mediterranean, off the, where the Roman Empire was in power. That's quite possible. Another way people look at it is it goes along with these ten horns that we see here, is that these ten horns seem to be offshoots of Rome and their governments that, that came out of Rome, if you will, and that they come back together and form one empire again. So that's why some people believe it's the revived Roman Empire too. So let's talk about these things here a little bit. First off, the little horn that you see, 
uh, verse 8, a little horn coming up among them before whom three of the first horns were plucked out, etc. Eyes of a man, mouth speaking pompous words. We know from putting this all together, this is a picture of the Antichrist. This is the little horn that comes out, which I always find fascinating because Christianity and um, Hollywood and the world is just mesmerized by this person, the Antichrist, who really only plays a central role in the world for seven years. And according to the Bible here in verse 8, he's just a little horn. <laughs> I like that. It's just a little horn. It's really nothing that big a deal. He's on the scene for about seven years, and he gets destroyed at the end. But yet, for some reason, we're just fascinated by this man. He's just somebody that the enemy uses for seven years here. So he's a little horn that comes up. Real quick background about the Antichrist. If this looks familiar to you, it should. Anytime we do a teaching on the Antichrist, I just cut and paste these exact same points. So don't think I'm doing anything new or intelligent here. These are the quick talking points, if you will, of the Antichrist. We'll just go through these real quick. We know he's empowered by Satan. We know here, you can look ahead if you want in Daniel 7.25, what he does is he persecutes the saints that are left on the earth after the rapture, blasphemes God. He's a political power. He aligns himself with religious Babylon. He does some type of fake resurrection, it looks like. We put a question mark beside that because we don't know for sure. But in Revelation 13, it talks about a wound that's been healed. And he's really only in power for about three and a half years. That's really all it is. If you jump ahead, look at verse 25 of Daniel 7. This is once again speaking of the Antichrist. It says, He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, we talked about, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, we just talked about, shall intend to change times and laws, then the saints shall be given to his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, biblical prophecy, time, times, and half a time, time represents one, times represents two, and then half a time is a half. So one plus two plus a half is three and a half years. Antichrist is really only majorly in power for three and a half years. The first three and a half years of the tribulation, he's aligning political power, he's aligning military power, he's aligning religious power, and it's really not until the abomination of desolation happens in the middle of the tribulation that he really then rules the world for the last three and a half years. So this little horn that you see there in verse 8 is the Antichrist. Now, Let's do one more quick point, then we'll stop here for a second because there may be questions. The idea of who are the ten horns, this ten horns thing that kind of happened right here, what we know is this, is that there's ten kingdoms that come together, and these ten kingdoms willfully give their power over to the Antichrist. And that's exactly what we've done. We've already hit this one time before in Daniel 7.25. It's for three and a half years. And then we've also seen there, if you look at your sheet in Daniel 7.26, we eventually know it's destroyed. If we'd had more time, we'll go into Revelation 17, but I'll let you guys look that up yourself since we just did Revelation a few months ago. These ten kingdoms come together, and they willfully give their power over to the Antichrist, and that's where he gets his power from, as these people willfully let him rule and lead then. And so that's how he ends up taking over the earth, and that's what he does for the first three and a half years, is combine his power. Last three and a half years, then he rules as the Antichrist. Daniel, roughly, what, uh, 3,000 years ago, said... That's exactly what's going to happen. God's not surprised by any of this. It always fascinates me, and I'm not trying to pick on people, and please don't think I am. It fascinates me when I run into somebody who's a Christian that gets really concerned about end times events. We know what happens. We know exactly what happens. So when people come and say, well, what do you think is going to happen? Well, the rapture is going to happen, and then there's going to be an antichrist, and Jesus is going to return the second coming, and then there's the millennial reign, and then we get to go to heaven for all of eternity. It sounds pretty good to me. I like it. But there's nothing to be concerned about. We've known for thousands of years what the plan was. We know exactly what's going to happen. We're just waiting for all the parts to come together. This is what Daniel's seeing here right now. So that's the first eight verses there. Has anybody got any quick questions, comments about this? Ryan? Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, creation. I don't think that caught on, though. 
I was, I was dry sense of humor, sorry. Yeah, what it is is, and we don't know for sure, and that's a really good verse that you brought up there of what it intends to mean. The, the most common interpretation I've heard is that in verse 25, when he comes in, you have to remember during the tribulation period, the temple is rebuilt. There's actually going to be the reissuing of sacrifices, and they're going to have a priesthood set up. We know that in the middle of the tribulation, the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist literally goes into the temple to the uh, Holy of Holies and basically sets up either a statue of himself or puts himself right in there and says, I'm God, worship me. So what some people also believe where he tends to change times and laws is some of your translations actually talks about how it tends to change feasts and sacrifices. And some people believe that he's going to come in, he's going to say, okay, you Jews, you have this whole setup here, Yom Kippur and all this other type of stuff. He goes, well, we're no longer going to worship Jehovah, you're going to worship me. And he's intending to change seasons and laws. There. We don't know for sure, but it looks like he takes the religious system that's there and totally twists it up to make it worship of him. Anybody else have anything here about the Antichrist or the Ten Kingdoms here? Yeah, Bob. I guess the reason I would probably go with it being the Romans is because when you look at the description there in, in verse 7, this idea of, of being you know, terrible and dreadful, you know, when you think of Rome, the power of their military, I mean that they were literally able to go to almost wherever they wanted to and conquer to an extent. And the only thing I would say about that is also if you look in verse 7 once again, it ends there in verse 7. There is no next kingdom which kind of brings to that point again if you study out history about the Rome, is they were never really necessarily, an invading army never really came and defeated them. They just kind of started to cease to exist. And that part of verse 7, trampling the residue with its feet, and it was different there with all, its, uh, all the beasts. And there's one other reference here. Uh, right here, look at verse 19, if you will, please. I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured broken pieces and trampled the residue with its feet. Some people believe that phrase there, broken pieces, signifies how the Roman Empire ended. It was broken actually into pieces. And like I said, if you look at any mostly Western civilization and most of Western Europe, everybody's government is based off of a piece of Rome. That's kind of just the system that we have set up there. But good question. Anybody else have anything here? Ten horns, Antichrist, etc. Well, we know how it ends. Verse 9. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. Reference to God. His garment was white as snow. Reference to purity. And the hair of his head was pure wool. Not necessarily to say that he's old, but it talks of speaking of wisdom, white hair wisdom. His throne was a fiery flame, speaking judgment. Its wheels are burning fire, judgment. Fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were open. The end of verse 10, what are we talking about? Judgment. See, we, we sit here and we talk about these four kingdoms coming. We talk about the Antichrist rising up. We talk about ten nations coming together, forming a confederacy, and giving their power over the Antichrist. And we sit here and we say, oh no. Don't worry, verse 10, court was seated, books are opened. God's going to take care of this. Hebrews 10, 29 through 31, if you want to study that out yourself, it says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. It talks about how God is a righteous judge. It goes on to say, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So as we sit here worrying and wondering about wrongs not being righted and the world going downhill, it's all going to be taken care of. Court will be open. Court is in session. God will take care of it. What happens, verse 11? I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient days, and they brought him near him. We're talking about second coming. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. It's interesting that verse 14 is emphasized there. Babylon, they're defeated. Medes and Persians, defeated. Greece, defeated. Rome, gone. Antichrist, gone. Verse 14, Christ's kingdom lives on forever. You know, it's one of those things where we know how the story ends. There's nothing to be worried about. But, verse 15, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I like this because it's realistic. We can sit here, and it's like, it's like when Christians get together. We can't ever talk about being afraid of dying, because then it sounds like we're not really good, solid Christians. So we always say, oh, I'm not scared of anything, then I walk out, and I'm completely scared of everything. Daniel's honest. This troubles him. This, this bothers him. And I appreciate that honesty. Because what you have here now in verses 16 through 28 is the interpretation of everything that just happened. So look at, I put this, sheet, uh, this on the sheet there. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I, I thought about this reference in Job, if you will, please, where it says the question, Can you search out the deep things of God? Can you find out the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than heaven. What can you do? Deeper than Sheol. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and broader than the sea. Every now and then I run into somebody who just keeps thinking about things. And the only wisdom I can give them is, you think too much. You, you, you know, they're, they're worried about this and they're worried about that. And, and it's just, you think too much. This is basically what Job is saying here in Job 11. You can't figure these things out. So what's the answer? Well, look at the second verse, 1 Corinthians 2.10. God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things. It's the deep things of God. See, I just need to worry about the things that the Lord reveals to me in the Spirit. I don't need to worry about the other stuff. I don't know who the Antichrist is. And I know Christians that spend their life trying to figure out who it is. You can't figure it out. Let it go. Move on. It doesn't matter. And my spirit, I know that Jesus is going to return. Sometimes last night we were doing devotions. And we've been getting on the subject of sin and salvation. So Judah last night, who's uh, six, talking about sin and salvation. And he talks about when we sin, Jesus Christ died for the cross for our sins. And I said something about when you sin, we need to go to Christ. We ask for forgiveness. That's the beauty of it. Judah said, I don't have to do that. And I said, why? He goes, well, he already died for my sins. It's all taken care of. I said, yes, he did die for your sins. But I said, now when we sin again, we need to go to him and say, we're sorry. But Judah couldn't get past it. He already died for my sins. Why do I have to keep telling him I'm sorry? It's already taken care of. Poor little guy starts getting in tears because he's so concerned about this issue. And I remember telling him, Judah, it's okay. Keep it simple. Jesus loves you, and that's all you need to know. I can't remember what great theologian it was, but one time they asked him, they said, well, how would you sum up theology? And he summed it up by saying, Jesus loves me, this I know. How simple is that? Corinthians talks about the simplicity of Christ. So I don't know your personalities. Some of you I do know your personalities. And some of you think too much. Some of you need to go look at this verse in Job and say, can you search out the deep things of God? No, you can't. Go to Corinthians then and say, God reveals him to us through his spirit. The spirit will reveal it to us when we need to know it, how we need to know it, and then take that information and go with it. Verse 15, you can be Daniel and just be troubled and troubled and troubled. doesn't do any good. What does Daniel do? Verse 16, we're going to pick up the pace here a little bit. Verse 16, he asks somebody of the interpretation. Verse 17, four great beasts are four kings. And then he kind of just goes on to explain everything there about who they are, the saints of the Most High, etc., but note verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. See, he's trying to make a point here. These four great kingdoms may rule for 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. But verse 18, as saints, we get to rule forever. That's what matters. 
Verse 19, we've talked about verse 20. We've talked about the ten horns that come together. Verse 21, I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints. That's the Antichrist and the tribulation. Verse 22, Ancient of Days comes with judgment. That's the second coming of Christ then. And he comes right out and says who these things are. Verse uh, 23, the fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth, trample and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall rise from this kingdom. That's what we've talked about, is that this ten confederacy looks to be offshoots of what Rome was. Another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones and shall subdue three kings. That's the Antichrist. Verse 25, we've talked about speaking pompous words. Jump ahead to verse 26. The court shall be seated, they shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the whole kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion shall serve and obey him. Write this again in verse 26. The court shall be seated. Even though the Antichrist is ruling and reigning, verse 26, judgment comes at the second coming of Christ. And Christ inherits, I shouldn't say inherits, Christ then rules for all of eternity, and we get to inherit that with him. So, Daniel 7 is a great chapter. It's a great chapter of hitting some of the things that we've talked about in the first six chapters of Daniel, plus it also sets the scene for some of the prophecy that we're going to get to in the last few chapters here of Daniel. So a lot of information tonight. I really encourage you in your devotional time tonight or in this next couple of weeks, go back and look up these verses here that we just made reference to. I think it's always important to go look them up, read them in context, and get a feel for it there. So we covered a lot of grounds, and I tell you this, what matters most out of all these lessons, we can sit here and talk about Babylon and Medes and Persians. That stuff doesn't matter. What matters is Jesus Christ is going to return, and he's going to return, and as he returns, the world will either spend eternity in hell or in heaven. And if you know Christ as your Savior, you get heaven. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, you get hell. That is what matters. So therefore, with us having that knowledge, making the assumption tonight that everybody here knows Christ, that then spurs us on. Remember, we finished every lesson in Revelation, we finished with this. This information we have about prophecy does no good unless we take this information to spur us on to then go tell other people about Christ. That's all that matters. Go back to how God described Babylon. He described it as the man that was plucked off and given a heart. Seems to be a reference to Nebuchadnezzar. That's what God cared about, is that Nebuchadnezzar came to know the Lord. That's all that matters, and that gives us peace in times of trouble. So when you watch the news, don't get worked up. The court will be in session, and they'll take care of it. God will always take care of it. Anybody have any final questions, comments here before? Yes, Steph. The what judgment? Yeah, that's going to be just for the unsaved. That's probably a reference to the great white throne judgment there in uh, Revelation uh, 19 and 20 there. So just a judgment of the non-believers. We as believers don't go through the great white throne judgment. As soon as we die, we have entrance into heaven, Christ. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All right, let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, it's good to talk about this stuff. It's fun to talk about this stuff. But the only thing that matters is if we know you personally. And uh, thank you for your salvation, your grace, your mercy. And uh, thank you for your return, that you're not leaving us here. Thank you so much for that. Lord, in the time that we have left, and we don't know if it's minutes, days, years, decades, centuries, we don't know. Help us to live for you in all that we say and all that we do. Be lights and witnesses for you. We all know people that don't know you personally. Help us to be spurred on by this information to go tell people about it. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys have a good weekend. God bless.